Thank you so much for joining us for Ankeny Gospel Church Podcast. On this podcast, you can find sermons, classes, and other resources that continue to invite us into the mission of Jesus and the journey of faith. We hope this is a blessing to you, and if we can help you in any way, feel free to reach out. Today's text is Mark 16, 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. When they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side. They were alarmed. Don't be afraid, he told them. You are looking for Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there, just as he told you. They went out and ran from the tomb, because trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And they said nothing to anyone, since they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. One of the uh, exciting things about being a church plant is you can decide what you want to do and decide what you don't want to do. You can you know, decide different things that you want to start new, start fresh. You can decide things that you want to continue uh, that other churches have done, that Christians have done. And one of those things uh, that have been happening for thousands of years, thousands of years, from since Resurrection Day, Christians would do this call and response where uh, the elder, the pastor, the parishioner, the priest, whatever, would say, he is risen, and the congregation would say, he is risen indeed. And so what we want to do, the reason we do this is not arbitrary because it's just what we always do. It's because we want to be able to participate in the saints who have gone before, participate with the thousands and millions of Christians who believe this today and are worshiping today, and participate and pave the way for Christians and saints who will come far after us. So church this morning, he is risen. risen Amen. Father, we thank you that that is true. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you that in you there is no death. There is only life. We thank you that in you the uh, the same power that raised you from the dead lives in us. We thank you that you don't leave us as we are, but your resurrection actually raises us to new life. We thank you that we get that new life today, and we get that new life every day for the rest of eternity. We thank you that your resurrection offers a hand of forgiveness and redemption to our sin and our brokenness. Father, we thank you for the other churches, the other Christians. In Ankeny, we think of all the other pastors and all the other Christians who are celebrating your resurrection today here in Ankeny. We think of the Des Moines area. We think of the state of Iowa. We think of the nation, Lord, and we think of the world. We're gathered today. We are just a part of what you are doing in our world. 
We are a part. We get, to, we get to participate and be a part of what you are doing and participate in your resurrection power. Father, give us yourself. Teach us your word. Teach us to hear what you have to say. We pray all these things in your son's holy name, in your risen son's holy name, and by the power of the Spirit. And all God's people said... Amen. A.W. Tozer has a famous quote, and he says this, What comes to your minds, and to our minds, when we think about God and Jesus is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God and Jesus is the most important thing about us. A lot of people agree with this. A lot of other Christians agree with this. I agree with this. But the question is why? why like you're sitting there this morning, why is it that when you hear the the name God, the name Jesus, what comes to your mind? Why is that the most important thing about you? Well, because, you know, an incorrect view of God can lead to some things, but a correct view of God can also lead to something. So an incorrect view of God, to paint, you know, kind of a caricature, is this idea of God, you know, this might be a popular narrative, this idea of God is this old angry guy with a long white beard in the clouds, you know, and he's super angry, and Jesus is the good guy, and so, you know, Jesus, we kind of like Jesus, but God is always kind of, you know, just grumpy, right? That's kind of maybe a narrative that you might have heard or sometimes you believe. And while that is an incorrect view of God, there's a, there's a subtle version of that that I think is more believable. And the subtle version of that is that God is always slightly disappointed with you. God is always just slightly a little bit angry at your sin, slightly disappointed in where you're at in life. Wish that you were just a little bit, little bit further along. And the results of that, we, we, we respond to that in one of two ways. We respond in avoidance or we respond in performance, right? If you think that, if you subtly believe that God is a little bit disappointed in you, you will either avoid God or you will try to perform for God. You will avoid God. You will avoid his church. You will avoid his word. You will avoid his teachings, we know this in relationships, right? Whenever your friend, spouse, sibling, parent, whatever, is a little bit angry with you and you might know it or you might think you know it, you might avoid them, you know, might not respond right away to the text or might like try to like try to, you know, avoid them, right? We respond in avoidance. We also respond, some of us respond more in performance. This is where I think I, I fall prey to all the time is when I think that God might be a little bit angry with me, I'm just going to try a little harder, I'm just going to read the Bible a little bit more. I'm going to pray a little bit more. I'm going to try to be nicer to people a little bit more. We do this in regular relationships all the time with friends, with spouses, with siblings, with parents, with children, where if we think that somebody is a little bit mad, we try to go above and beyond to try to make them not mad. And this leads to just this burden, this weight that what you're doing in life is not good enough. What you're doing in life will not please this person or will not please God, and it gives you this anxiousness. Where do I stand with them? What's my relationship like with them? Will they, will they, ever, will they ever enjoy my, my presence? Will they always be slightly disappointed? A correct view of God leads to life, and it leads to life abundant as Jesus says. A correct view of God is not that God is always slightly disappointed with you, but rather that when, when he, rather that he loves you so much and so that when he sent his son for you, 
and you are in his son, his, son right, his son's righteousness becomes your righteousness. His son's life becomes your life. His son's identity becomes your identity. His son's relationship with the father becomes now your relationship with the father. His son's resurrection actually becomes your resurrection. And this is why the most important thing about you is what comes to your mind when you think of God and Jesus. And what we've been doing in the gospel according to Mark is we've said that the gospel according to Mark, which is the, the, the book of the Bible we've been going through, we've been saying that the purpose is to show us who Jesus is and the purpose is to invite us to follow him. The reason we're emphasizing show us who Jesus is is because we need a correct view of Jesus. We, we can't just import our own view of Jesus or have a shallow view of Jesus or have a, a cultural view of Jesus. We need the Jesus that Mark presents for us, that Matthew does, that Luke does, that John does. And what Mark is doing is he is showing us who Jesus is, and he is inviting us to follow him. And so today we're concluding the gospel according to Mark. We read the text this morning, Mark 16, 1 through 8. And in order to do that, I want to go over four quick highlights um, of the Gospel of Mark. So, so to catch us up to speed for Mark chapter 16, I want to go over four highlights that Mark touches on, then, then we're going to go into Mark chapter 16 together. So the first highlight of the Gospel according to Mark is Jesus's Gospel. One theologian says, if we don't start with the Gospel Jesus does preach, odds are we will end with a Gospel that Jesus does not preach. So what is Jesus' gospel? Well, it says it right there in uh, Mark chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. Jesus says, or the Bible says this, After John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming, which is the word for preaching, the good news of God. And this is Jesus' gospel. Little, might be a little different than what you and I would say the gospel is today. Jesus says this, proclaiming the good news or the gospel of God. Verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. The time is fulfilled. What time? Jesus is talking about the time of the old age, the time where God's presence was limited. It was just a pillar of cloud by day, a pillar of fire by night. The time where only, the, only a very few people could interact and talk to God. Prayer was not a thing. Only the priests could talk to God. Only the people that God put his spirit on could talk to God. It was a time of waiting. It was a time of waiting for a move of God. When sin was ruling, the prince of the power of the air felt more like the king of the power of the air. That is the time. It was the time of prophecy. When the, when the prophets of old would say to Israel, this is not the way. This is the way. Wait for this. Look to this. Look to God. Look to this coming suffering servant. And ultimately, it's just a time of, eventually, when the Old Testament ends, it's a time of silence. And what Jesus is saying is that time has reached its end. It has reached its climax. It is fulfilled. Jesus is the one who is bringing heaven back to earth. In his own words, on earth as it is in heaven. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near. That kingdom of peace, of life. The kingdom of the reversal of death. The kingdom where death does not have the last word, but there is only life, and what Jesus says, life abundant, and what Jesus says, life eternal. That is the kingdom of God, and Jesus says that has come near. Not come fully, 
Because we, we still have sin and death in this world. But it has come near. Repent, and then Jesus is called to action. Repent. Turn away from the old way of living. When Moses said, I just wish that everybody had the Holy Spirit, well, now we have the Holy Spirit, and he says, repent and believe the gospel. The first highlight of Mark is Jesus' gospel. The second highlight of Mark is Jesus' call. Jesus' call. What does Jesus call his followers to do? We talked about this two weeks ago. Mark 8. Calling the crowds along with the disciples, he said to them, If anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. The call of Jesus is free, but it is not cheap. To say yes to Jesus will, is, is making you say no to a thousand other things in this life. We have to follow him. We have to deny ourselves. Not, not self-hatred, but self-denial. We have to pick up our cross out of love. What led Jesus to the cross? Love. What leads us to our cross? Love. And we follow him. Because then he goes on after this call. He says that, uh, um, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of Jesus and the gospel will save it. Because what does it benefit you if you gain the whole world and, let, and yet lose your soul? Jesus' call is easy, but it will cost you. And the gospel, according to Mark, is trying to say that over and over and over again. What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? The third highlight of the gospel, according to Mark, is Jesus' crucifixion. We talked about this on Friday. Jesus' crucifixion in the gospel according to Mark um, that Dave pointed out for us was this kind of dramatic irony where Jesus actually went through a royal enthronement, but it was not in the way that any of us were expecting it, right? He was given a crown, but it was a crown of thorns. He was given a robe, but it was after he was stripped and it was in mockery of him. He was hailed as a king. Hail king of the Jews was written above his head, and the people said it as they walked by him, but it was not a real praise. It was a cruel joke. And finally, he was lifted up. Kings are high and lifted up, but instead of being lifted up on a throne, he was lifted up on a cross. And in this moment, Jesus defines for us what the Messiah means, what salvation means, and what we as his followers are called to. The fourth highlight of the gospel, according to Mark, is responses to Jesus. This one's interesting. If you go back, I would encourage you to go back and read through the gospel of Mark and write down every character that met Jesus and then what their response was. Because what Mark does is he brings us, he, he's, he's telling us and he's showing us who Jesus is, but then he's showing us people that meet Jesus and they're either healed by him or they confront him or they argue with him or they, you know, see him from a distance and then they leave and then their response is recorded. And there's a ton of different responses to Jesus. We have just a few here. Some respond in fear, some respond in offense, some respond in astonishment, some respond in trembling, some respond in anger some in terror, confusion, and then few, very few people in the Gospel of Mark respond in humility, in faith, and in belief. And the whole time, this is not just to, to 
enact a, or to, to recount a historical event, what he's doing is he's showing us that when you meet Jesus, something changes. When you meet Jesus, you have to respond. Everybody is responding in one of these ways. And so those four highlights, Jesus' gospel, Jesus' call, Jesus' crucifixion, and the responses to Jesus all lead us to this text that we're in today. So if you have your uh, Bibles, we'll be in Mark 16, verse 1, and we're just going to walk through this text uh, together. Mark 16, verse 1 says this, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome bought spices. By the way, the, the name Salome, it's technically pronounced Salome, but it sounds way too much like salami, and I didn't want to make you guys like drool while I was preaching and thinking about lunch, so we'll just say Salome. So Salome uh, bought spices so that they could go and anoint him. Okay, if you remember the end of Jesus' crucifixion, it says that Mary, Mary, and Salome, these exact three women, were there at Jesus' crucifixion. They were at the foot of the cross, And it says at the end of Mark that they actually followed him around in Galilee, they followed him in Jerusalem, and they served him. Christian tradition tells us that these women and other women like them actually provided Jesus with a lot of food and the disciples with food. They provided them places to stay and to sleep. And at the end of this, when um, Joseph of Arimathea, he takes Jesus's body, it says right there, right above 16 verse 1, it says, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph, were watching where he was laid. So they were at the foot of the cross and they watched him be taken down from the cross and they followed and they watched Jesus laid in the tomb. That's important. It's very important because they know where to go the next day. So it says when the Sabbath was over. So Jesus, as we know, was he was crucified on a Friday. And what the Jewish calendar is like is that their day begins when the sun sets. So Friday night, They had to hurry and bury Jesus because when the sun set on Friday night was the beginning of their Sabbath. So they couldn't do any work. They couldn't bury somebody. They couldn't take somebody down from a cross. They couldn't, all the markets were closed down. They couldn't buy spices. They couldn't do anything. Friday night, the sun sets. They go through all day Saturday, right? Saturday at sunset, the Sabbath is then over. And interestingly, at sunset, all the markets open up, which is you think they open up in the morning, but they just open up that night. So what Mary, Mary, and Salome did is when the Sabbath was over, which is on Saturday night at sunset, they went to the market to buy spices to anoint Jesus because he actually hadn't been anointed before because they had to rush to bury him. So that's what that means. Mary, Mary, and Salome, they bought spices so that they could go and they could anoint Jesus. Verse 2, very early in the morning... On the first day of the week, Sunday, they went to the tomb at sunrise. They went to the tomb at sunrise. Now, this is unfortunate because the more research I was doing, the more I realized that the phrase very early in the morning and sunrise are used a lot in the Bible, and I am just not a morning person. And so I was reading that, and I was like, man, it's really important things happen in the morning. I guess I'm just going to be asleep for them. Um, So very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, uh, they went to the tomb at sunrise. Now, this phrase, very early in the morning, is repeated a lot in the Bible. It is very, one of the famous Psalms, Psalm 30, it says that uh, weeping lasts for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Same phrase. 
It was very early in the morning, same phrase, when Abraham, if you remember, he took Isaac, his son. He was commanded to sacrifice his son, Isaac. So he goes up to the mountain very early in the morning to sacrifice his son, but then God actually intervenes and offers the sacrifice himself. It is very early in the morning when God called Moses and the people of Israel to Mount Sinai, and he revealed himself as the Lord, a God who is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness and truth and justice. It is very early in the morning when Malachi says that righteousness rises with healing in its wings. It's very early in the morning when God delivers Daniel, this is cool, not ironic, God delivers Daniel from the tomb-like lion's den that was sealed with a heavy stone. Very early in the morning, the stone is removed and Daniel is alive. It was very early in the morning that David prophesies that a king from his line will come and he will rule the people with justice. He will rule in the fear and the love of God. He will be like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning and his throne will rule forever and ever. It is very early in the morning that all of these things happen. And this, this what Mark is saying is this is that morning. This is that morning. This is the dawn of the new age. This is the beginning of heaven coming down and being on earth. This is the morning that is unlike all other mornings. And what's happening is that Mary, Mary, and Salome, they actually don't know that they're walking into this miraculous, divine morning. They don't know it. They're oblivious to this fact. And how do we know that? Verse 3. They, Mary, Mary, and Salome, they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone from the entrance to the tomb for us? Who will roll away the stone? What are they thinking of? They're thinking of physical things. They're thinking of earthly things. They are not thinking that Jesus is not in the tomb. They're not understanding that the, st the, the stone is going to be rolled away. Jesus told them, by the way, in Mark, Jesus told his disciples and his followers and the people three times that he was going to die he was going to be buried, and he was going to rise again on the third day. And Mary and Mary and Salome are unknowingly entering into this morning, this, this dawn, not thinking that the Lord is going to actually come through with his promises. So they're, they're saying, who's going to roll the stone from the entrance from us? Uh, verse 4, looking up, they noticed that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. Looking up. Cool little, cool little thing. The phrase looking up is only used when Jesus, right before Jesus is about to perform a miracle. The phrase looking up is only used in Mark right before Jesus is about to perform a miracle. Looking up, he broke the bread, he gave it to his disciples, and they fed thousands and thousands of people. Looking up with his thumbs on the blind guy's eyes, looking up to heaven, he prayed, and he said, be opened, and his eyes were opened. Looking up later, again, he thanked God, he blessed the bread, he broke it, and he fed the other thousands and thousands of people. This phrase, looking up, should trigger us to say, a miracle is about to happen. Something is happening here. Because every time we look up, Jesus performs a miracle. Looking up, they noticed that the stone, which is very large had, large, had been rolled away. Verse 5, they entered the tomb. They, they walked into the tomb. They saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they, their response, they were alarmed. 
rightfully so. Verse 6, don't be alarmed. By the way, every time there's an angel in the Bible, people freak out. And the, most times the angel's response is, stop, don't be scared. And it's like, that's not helpful at all. You know, like, no, like I'm still scared. Like what's going on here? Like it's like when somebody's like anxious, it's like, well, just stop. Anyway, I thought that was funny when he's like, don't be alarmed. So this angel says, don't be alarmed. He told them, following in in verse six, you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they put him. Who did he say? He said, you were looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Why didn't he say, you know, Jesus of Nazareth who performed all of those miracles? Jesus of Nazareth who raised Jairus' daughter from the dead? Jesus of Nazareth who commanded the weather and the weather obeyed him. Jesus of Nazareth, who uh, fed thousands and thousands of people. Jesus of Nazareth, who caused the blind to see, the deaf to hear, the self-righteous to stumble. Why did this angel say, Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified? The answer is because without death, there is no resurrection. Without the crucifixion, there is no resurrection. Without death, there is no life. Because what Paul says is we proclaim Christ and him crucified, right? It is, on the, it is the cross where Jesus' identity is made known. It is on the cross where that Roman centurion, as we talked about Friday, said, truly, this guy was the son of God. It is on the cross that Jesus became sin for us. It's on the cross that Jesus became obedient to death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2. It's on the cross that Jesus became the curse of the world, that he atoned for our sins. It is on the cross where we actually see true power where it is in death that we get life. It is on the cross that we see what love really is. It is on the cross that Jesus' words in Mark 10, 45, I did not come to be served, but rather to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many, come to fruition. It is on the cross where Isaiah says he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. In order that, he had to go to the cross. In order that, he would be raised from the dead. And when we say he is risen, we are saying he had to die first. Which means what? I have to die in order to be raised from the dead. It is Jesus Christ and him crucified that we proclaim. That's why the angel said, you are looking for Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. Then he says, he is risen, he is not here. Now, let me prove it for you. See the place where they put him. Verse 7. But go, the angel continues to talk, but go, tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there just as he told you. In uh, Mark chapter 14, Jesus told the disciples and the people with him, he said, hey, I'm going to die. I'm going to be buried. I'm going to raise from the dead. And then when I'm raised from the dead, I'm going to go to Galilee. Meet me there. Right? He told them that. And they, it said they didn't understand, which is like, awesome, great. 
So this angel is just reminding them, hey, he said he's going to go to Galilee, so why don't you go there? But look at the first phrase of verse 7. But go tell the disciples and Peter. Where was the last time we saw the disciples? Where was the last time we saw Peter? The last time we saw the disciples, if you remember, was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is there. He brings his, the 12 with him after their Passover meal. He, uh, he sits them down, and he goes off by himself, and he prays. He said, stay awake, pray for me. And he goes off by himself, he prays. He says, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will. He comes back, and what are they doing? They're asleep. Hey, wake up. Come on. Why are you, why are you not praying? Pray with me. Okay, they say, okay, okay, okay. He goes back. He prays by himself. Lord, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will. He comes back. What are they doing? They're asleep. He does it a third time. Goes by himself, prays, comes back. What does he say? He said, why are you asleep? Look, my betrayer is here. And Judas and a mob a mob of people with torches and spears and clubs, Mark says, they come and they arrest Jesus. And at the end of chapter 14, it says, all of the disciples deserted him and ran away. The disciples who had been walking with Jesus for three years, who saw him raise people from the dead, who saw the transfiguration where Moses and Elijah and the glory of God came on the mountain, who saw him heal people, who heard his teachings, who heard his parables, who lived with him, who were in a boat with him, who fished with him, who ate with him. For three years, they all deserted him and ran away. Peter didn't. Peter followed for a little bit. He followed at, uh, at a distance. Jesus is arrested. He's taken into the chief priest's courtyard. He's warming himself by a fire, and what? A little 12-year-old girl comes out and says, you were one of the disciples. I know you. And he says, no, that's not me. Again, it happens. You were one of the disciples. I know you. No, that wasn't me. The third time it happens, Peter, it says in Mark that he cursed and he swore, I don't know that man that you're talking about. The rooster crowed. He says, it says he went out and wept bitterly. That's the last time we see the disciples running away, scared for their life, cursing the man that they had been living with for three years, swearing that they did not know that person. And what does this angel say? Go tell his disciples and Peter the power of the resurrection is the power of redemption. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that says to his disciples who betrayed him, ran away from him, cursed him, and claimed they didn't know him, your denial does not have the last word. The resurrection has the last word. It is not in their sin and their fear and their betrayal that defines their relationship with Jesus. Jesus, in his selfless act, his final selfless act of giving himself to them, he says, go tell them. Why? Because I want to extend my hand of reconciliation. I want to extend my hand of forgiveness. I want to extend my hand of love and second chances to these people. 
That's the power of the resurrection. That's what you and I have. How many times have you sinned and you thought, man, my sin is keeping me from Jesus? My betrayal, my insecurities, my ashamedness, my sin, my relationships, Jesus would not want that. And yet right here, the people who physically walked with Jesus for three years, ran away from him, cursed him, said they didn't know him. Jesus says, you, I want you. The power of the resurrection is the power of redemption. Go tell the disciples and Peter and Peter and Peter, the one who denied him three times and said he was never going to die him three times, the one on whom Matthew says the church will stand on it and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Go tell Peter he's ahead of you in Galilee. You'll see him there just as he told you. Verse 8, here's the glorious ending of the gospel according to Mark. Verse 8, they went out, these women, they went out and they ran from the tomb because trembling and fear I'm sorry, trembling and astonishment overwhelmed them. And in the last phrase, they said nothing to anyone since they were afraid. Now, some of you are probably thinking like, well, that's not how the book ends. I have more verses in my Bible. If you look at the end of verse 8 before 9, or maybe there's a little asterisk or something, it might say, uh, you know, some of the earliest manuscripts conclude at verse 8, or later manuscripts added verse 9 through 10. Um, what we know is that Mark 1 through 8, Mark 16, 1 through 8, was original. That's where the book ended originally. Now, nobody likes cliffhangers. Nobody likes, you know, unhappy endings. So what happened later was people came by, Christian communities, good, godly, Jesus-fearing, believing Christian communities, came by and they added a few verses, um, which is good. I encourage you to read them, to read verses 9 through 20. It's interesting. Um, but it's beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Mark ended at verse 8. He ended at this cliffhanger. He ended with this phrase, and they ran away. No, no, they said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. The question is, why did Mark end it here? Why did Mark end uh, this abrupt ending? Mark ended this way because he wants to put the ball in our court of responding to Jesus. All throughout Mark, we've been seeing how people respond to Jesus. They're, ter they're terrified. They're angry. They're confused. They're astonished. And now Mark is saying, what are you going to do with this news? What are you the reader today, right here, right now? When you see the empty tomb, what are you going to do about it? The abrupt ending demands a response from you and me. And if, if, the, if, if, this, if this frustrates you, these women didn't say anything. If this frustrates you, like, why didn't they, why didn't they say anything? The question then is, who else is going to say something? Who else is going to walk into the empty tomb and come out running with fear and trepidation, uh, but actually needing to respond to Jesus in faith and say he is risen? Who's going to finish the story? Very few people in the Gospel of Mark actually understand who Jesus is. There are those who are most familiar with religion and the Bible. They don't understand who Jesus is. There are those who see Jesus and his miracles, and they still don't understand who Jesus is. There's Peter, as we talked about a few weeks ago, who said, you're the Messiah, but I actually don't understand what the Messiah means. I don't understand who Jesus is. And those who do see Jesus for who he truly is are those who are the outcast of society, those who are at their wits end in life, those who need something. Those who have no hope, 
for anything else. Those are the people who believe in Jesus. And so this anticlimactic ending demands the question, is there anyone else who will fulfill this task? Is there anybody else who heard Jesus' teachings in Galilee? Is there anybody else who saw Jesus' miraculous feedings? Is there anybody else who understood Jesus' gospel call and gospel crucifixion? Is there anybody else who remained awake at Gethsemane, who followed Jesus in his trials by the chief priest, who followed Jesus to Pilate's interrogation, who stood by Jesus at the cross, who watched with the women the tomb that he was laid in, and who witnessed the joyous confirmation of his resurrection? Is there anybody else who has experienced these things? The answer is, of course there is. It's you and it's me. When we read these scriptures, we are seeing Jesus, and we are demanded to respond. It's interesting, every time Jesus says, don't tell anybody, don't tell anybody about the miracle I just did, what do they do? They disobey him, and they go, and they tell him. But here, the angel says, go, tell. And what do they do? They don't. The question is, what, how are you going to respond to Jesus? How are you going to respond to Jesus, to this news? How are you going to respond to the empty tomb? We've seen it all. We've seen Jesus' gospel. We've seen Jesus' call. We've seen the healings. We've seen the disciples betray him. We've been frustrated with the disciples. Yet the reality is, is we are probably more like the disciples and more like these women who run away terrified and don't say anything to anybody than we'd like to admit. Yet the power of the resurrection is the power to proclaim. The power of the resurrection is the power of redemption. The power of Jesus being raised from the dead, as Paul says in Romans, is the same power that lives in you and me today. And when we say yes to Jesus, when we respond by not running away fearful, but by believing in humble faith, when we do that, God gives us himself. God gives us himself. We now participate in Jesus's life. We now participate in Jesus's power. We now participate in Jesus's sufferings. But one day and today, we also participate in Jesus's resurrection. How are you going to respond to Jesus? Does the resurrection give you resurrection life today? Or is it something you think about in the future? Does the resurrection mean that you are truly a new human being? We say this often, Jesus is not in the business of making bad people good. He is in the business of making dead people alive. Is that the Jesus that you're seeing? And so to close, I just want to ask that of you. How are you responding to Jesus? This message, this gospel message this resurrection message, this empty tomb message, it demands a response from you and me. It demands a response of, of repentance and belief. And the only requirement is humble faith. That's it. The only requirement is humble faith. It will demand everything of you, but it will give you so much more. And the only requirement is humble faith. So in a minute, um, as I, I want this question on the screen. I, I want this to... Uh, I want us to reflect on this. And in a minute, we're going to observe communion. Because Jesus himself, he said, this is the new covenant. This is the new way. In Jesus' resurrection, he gave us a new way. He is the new way. But before we do that, I'm going to pray. And then I want you to, when I'm done praying, I'd love for you guys to come up, grab the elements, return to your seats, and then take a few minutes 
and contemplate this and think about this and ask the Lord to, part of the beautiful ending about an abrupt ending of Mark is that it forces you to go back to the beginning and read it again and look at Jesus afresh again and again and again. So let me pray and then I'll invite you up to participate in communion. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it's living and it's active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. Lord, it convicts us. It gives us life. It trains us for righteousness. It gives us wisdom. And Father, Lord, your empty tomb means that death does not have the final answer. Lord, we're surrounded by death in so many different ways. We're surrounded by death of um, the body, sometimes death of the mind, of the spirit. And Lord, you offer us hope. And it's in your resurrection that we live. So Father, give us the resurrection power that you uh, promise to give us. Give us the hope of the dawn of the new age, Lord. Allow us to respond well to your call to us. We pray all these things in your son's name, by the power of the spirit. Amen. Thanks again for listening, and we pray this was a blessing to you. If you have any questions or comments about what you heard, our email is info at or you can find us on social media at Gospel. Thank you.